This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Jay Scott, and you are listening to The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's having a warm summer day. Looking across the weather forecast for the states, it looks to seem like it's hot everywhere. Hope everyone's having a cold beverage and enjoying the summer. I'd like to welcome in Chris Bischoff from the blog 360degree sound. That's 360degreesound.com, 360degreesound.com, and at Twitter, at 360 Degree Sound. Great follow, great insight, love his posts, and how you doing, Chris? Good. Thanks for having me on, Jay. It's a pleasure. As we begin every show, we start with the first question, the first time anyone is ever on the podcast, and that question is, what hooked you on rock and roll? Like every great song has a hook that sucks you in. Every rock fan has a moment whether it's a song, a band, an album, a performance that sucked you in on rock and roll. What was it for you, Chris? Well, I grew up in a house with a lot of music. My mom played piano, and she was a big uh, Elvis and Hank Williams fan. Um, My sister was a a musician as well. She's three years older than me. Um, And, you know, AM radio was big when I was a kid, so... I heard a lot of, you know, creepy teen death songs like Teen Angel and Seasons in the Sun and creepy stuff like Rock On by David Essex, which is, uh, you know, such a great track. And, you know, I started listening to my sister's 45s. You know, she had like Wildfire by Michael Martin Murphy and Brandy uh, by Looking Glass and that type of thing. And, you know, I got into like novelty stuff. I don't know if you remember the song Shaving Cream or maybe showing my age here a little bit but you know like the streak by ray stevens and cw mccall's convoy uh you know about cb radio stuff but my first real encounter with rock was bohemian rhapsody that was the first rock single that i bought like in 1975 and it was all about bohemian rhapsody for us that's why it's been cool to see this queen revival because queen really kind of was my first 
tune. But then I went to, to camp the next year in 1976, the sixth grade camp. Steve Miller's Fly Like an Eagle was out that spring. So it was big that summer. And all the older kids at camp were totally rocking out to Fly Like an Eagle. So I heard the song Rockin' Me uh, and Take the Money and Run. And I was like, oh, this is what, you know, this is what the big kids are into. This is cool. I went home, and that was actually the first record that I actually purchased myself with my own money was Fly Like an Eagle. The thing, the the moment that really hooked me on rock was Bob Seger's Live Bullet. That is still a landmark live recording, just classic stuff. And that just truly moved me. You know, I'm, I'm, I live in the Detroit area. I grew up here, obviously, big Detroit guy, hugely popular here, and you know, fought for years to break out of regional popularity and, and, and break it nationally. Live Bullet is just, I mean, he, he's just, he and his band are giving everything they have on that set. And it's recorded at Cobo Hall in Detroit here. That just sitting with that record, you know, in anticipation of this, got my, my copy of Live Bullet that I bought back in 76, I think it came out. And, uh, I think I got it in 77 and you know, I'm just looking at, at all the pictures in the gatefold, Bob, just like platform shoes, you know, long hair and beard and giving it all, man. Turn the page. It's like a great example of that. Yeah. The turn uh, the page, the turn the page uh, version on that album is an absolute classic. Uh, yeah, really. And just the way he, he brings in, he's like, this next song is from back in 72. Also it's about being on the road. Yeah, it's called Turn the Page. You know, and then you hear the classic sax riff, and he's just—he's exhausted. You can just hear, you know, every ounce of energy, right? He's given away in that. Well, that energy—that uh, energy helps elevate that song because the studio version versus the live version—it's almost like two different songs. Yeah, it, it's pretty flat. Yeah, yeah, and and the live energy really brings that song out to where it should be. Yeah, and that was why I think the the live LP format was so right for Bob because he was a live performer. He was a he was rocking Robert Seeger and you know doing his thing at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit and just working hard and paying dues, man. You know, and the connection to you know to to Detroit I think really brought it home for me, made it really personal. I think the song Katmandu, the live version of Katmandu was the the one as a you know a young kid at that time that really really hooked me. You know I was I was fortunate. We lived in Clarkston, Michigan, which is about forty miles north of the city of Detroit, and that's where Pine Knob Music Theater is now. It's called some corporate thing like DTE Theater or something. You know, back in the day, you know, all the great artists came right to my my little town. I mean, it was a nothing podunk town at that time, but all the all the national acts came through there, including Seeger. Yeah, that's been mentioned uh, before with interviews. I, I, I think of an interview with Getty Lee talking about the circuits that were around for live music back in the 70s. Way different than it is now. Um, like you said, you'd play these small towns, these smaller halls throughout the states that you wouldn't even think of seeing a big band like that now. I remember... Kiss, I, I wasn't old enough, but Kiss played my high school in the seventies, and you know, really, yeah, that I mean, they were. It was before they blew up with the Kiss Alive album, which is another great mm-hmm. live record recorded oh, yeah. recorded in Detroit. But 
it was they would they would he talks about driving around in a station wagon with all the gear and everything and going to these small towns and hooking up with this band here and that band over there and it was just a different type of scene back then i think you're starting to get back to that a little bit now because touring and playing live is so crucial to an artist making money that yeah. i you know you see a lot of these live venues popping up in these smaller towns and bands playing mm-hmm. there because that's the only way they're making money now. That's right. But, you know, going back to the live record that you mentioned, the 70s was, was the era for the live record. You think about yeah. you, you think back of all the classic live records released in the 70s, Kiss Alive, which I just mentioned was mm-hmm. also filmed at Co- or recorded at Cobo Hall, correct? Mhm. Yes. And absolutely. that yeah, and, and we talk about the energy of live music and what it meant to the song and what it meant to the artist. You can mm-hmm. talk about Kiss with Kiss with Kiss Alive and how their studio records really didn't do them justice, similar to Bob Seger, similar to other artists. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was a great tool back then because it, it seemed to me like just the recording process in the studios didn't have the ability to capture what bands were doing back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because most of these bands were live acts Mm -hmm. that's where like a phenomenon that i recall as a young person was a band's first record right was always seemed like it's always their best right because there was just years of you know just living it on the road and fighting between each other you know and like just years of songwriting so you had distillation of you know years and years of uh of hard work on the first record and then a lot of times like the sophomore effort was usually like Okay, not quite, not quite the same because I think these these bands were really thrive, and I think most bands in general, if they're a real band, right, you want to see them live, right, and hear their hear their you know see their show, feel the energy, and 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 hear the the different arrangements that they do live, you know. So being close to Pine Knob, you got a chance to actually then see Seeger live, you know, and hear him play with the band, and I mean that that was just transcendent yeah i'm like this is amazing this is this is this is what i want and <laughs> i want more of this you know i hear you know people on your show you know have, having that experience as young people like yes more of this please yes you know? yes i just uh took my son to see the rank of tours on nice was it a sunday yeah it was sunday up, up in milwaukee and mm-hmm. i've never seen jack white I've been a fan of Brendan Benson for a long time. Great singer-songwriter. Oh, yeah, I love his stuff. Yeah. And it was amazing. First of all, it was so hot at the Rave. The Rave was the venue that they played at, and it's about a couple thousand, 1,500 to a couple thousand capacity. I could be Mm -hmm. wrong. There might be more. But it was so hot because it's an older building, so there's no A.C., so you're watching the opening act, and you're sweating, and it kind of builds up the anticipation and I was telling my son this after the show. It used to be when we went to a concert, that first song, those first two songs, were like a punch right to the audience, right to the gut of the audience. It was, it was, it was just zero to 60 in terms of adrenaline in like two seconds. And right. it's very rare that you see a band do that now, you know, where they come out and it's just, and I tell you what, Jack White came out completely fired up. And they just started to roll. And those first five or six songs, 
like they held you at a level of energy for five or six songs in the beginning that was they just mm-hmm. gripped you and it was it's been a long time since I've been at a show where I felt that grip and I've seen everybody I saw the winery dogs last month I saw bad company earlier this month um, I saw temperance movement in, in Tyler Bryant you know you name it I, I even Greta Van Fleet I've seen and they all do a mm-hmm. great job they all they're all great but man, the rank of tours just held you for, and it was just the energy of the crowd and the energy of the band. And I said to my son, I'm like, that's how it's done. That's, that's, that's how, that's how you play it. Yeah. And that's, that's Jack one, our Detroit boy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, and he's, yeah, he's really carrying a torch that I think a lot of us can relate to. He's not as old as me and probably not as old as you, but yeah. you know, he gets it. I loved in uh, it might get loud. Did you ever see that? Oh, that's uh, awesome! I love that. I love it. The opening bit where he's like making a guitar, like yes. out of a like a piece of driftwood and like a a wire and you know like a pop bottle or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like just yeah. that ex- that spirit of experimentation. And if you ever uh, you know come to his store in Detroit, I mean, it's just it's super cool, man. He's just got all kinds of. It's an emporium of one rock and roll wonders, you know? And I love that there's a guy out there who's uh, not only keeping that spirit alive, but being very successful in the process. Absolutely. No, it is. It's great. I'm on the fence. Speaking of Michigan, I'm on the fence about the struts and grand rapids this weekend. So it's about a three and a half hour drive for me. And I haven't seen the, the struts in a couple of years. And I'm like, Hmm, do I do it? <laughs> yeah, I forget where they're playing. I think it's anyway, but that would be awesome. Grand Rapids actually has a nice little scene. Yeah, they get uh, you know a lot of national acts uh, going through. Like Stray Cats are playing there, and they're not coming to Detroit on this tour. I'd love to see the Stray. Record. I've never seen the Stray Cats, and I'd love to see them. Yeah, I finally went and saw uh, Brian Setzer's Christmas thing. My wife and I went this past holiday season. It was phenomenal. He's just. I, he, and again, throwing back to Seeger, you know, and your experience with the rock and tours. I mean, Brian Setzer is a performer, comes out in like a, a purple lame leisure suit. And he's got like, you know, this glitter Les Paul or whatever. I mean, he's just, he's a showman. Yeah. I, I think we're missing that a little bit in, uh, in rock today. Well, let's segue into our discussion, you know, because uh, we kind of are, are talking about the live albums and, the 70s decade and how those records, not only with the sound of the album, but also the packaging, you know, being able to see the live photo on the back of the record. Most most live albums had that photo of the performance with the crowd that sucked you in, that hooked you on that record. It was like, wow, look at this. This is a complete awesome experience. And yeah. the discussion we're going to have today is, is that the difference between the physical and the digital platforms buying music digitally versus buying music physically and where the kind of future is going with that and and what's happening. It's a topic that I'm really passionate about because I love the physical aspect of the music. I still buy CDs. I still buy vinyl. Um, God love you. Yeah. I I love that packaging. I, a couple years ago, my son, when he turned 12, I bought him a CD player and about 10 CDs and he's, compiling a small collection of music as well. And I notice his connection is much more deeper than his friends who don't have that mm. physical connection. And that's really what we want to talk about. So 
we've kind of gone back and forth on, on direct message about what digital means today and, and, and what it's doing to the music business. And it's really at the heart of it. It really starts with how you obtain music and how you absorb it. We're from a different generation. And I hate to use the term back in the day, but back in the day when a record came out, it was, I think it was every Tuesday or every, and, yep. and, and Tuesday. yeah, Tuesday. And usually if I didn't have the money, if I didn't blow it all on whatever over the weekend with my friends, I'd wait till I get paid on a Friday and a bunch of us would get into a car and we'd head to the record store and we'd get there, we'd go eat dinner, get, get a burger or something like that, a pizza. And then we'd head over to the record store we get there about 6.30, 7 o'clock, and we'd be there for a couple hours. I mean, just two hours, just thumbing through music, looking at mm-hmm. the, the covers of different albums, the back uh, cover of the record, and just absorbing that. And, and there were times where I bought albums just solely based on the cover of the record. Yes, that does, too. Yeah, because I'm like, wow, this looks really cool. And yeah, sometimes it wasn't good. It didn't, you know, the, the music didn't <laughs> didn't match what I anticipated. But mm-hmm. a lot of times it did. A lot of times it was like, wow, this looks badass. I remember buying the Crocus Headhunter record. Okay. Based on the cover of the record. I it just spoke I just looked at it. I'm like, wow, this looks really this looks badass. I think I'm gonna get this. I don't know who Crocus is, but <laughs> And then I was just like a, a total like lifelong fan. They're not the you know a lot of people don't consider them a great band. I, I love them though. They're like one of my one of my like bad habits, I guess. <laughs> a guilty pleasure. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. No, I've definitely had that experience too. Like you know, I remember you know in the eighties we were all really sort of lamenting like the state of rock. I mean, eighties was a tough decade. In retrospect, there's a lot of great stuff that came out of there, but at the time it it, it seemed a little a little barren. And I remember flipping through and I, I found the meat puppets. I'd never heard of the meat puppets. You know, it was like a painting of a coffee cup on the, on the cover. And I was just like meat puppets. I think I remember uh, that record. <laughs> yeah. I remember that record. Yeah. Up on the sun. Yeah. We went home and threw it on. And like, and me and all my buddies were just like, what in the world is this? This is amazing. You yeah. know, it was just like came completely out of nowhere. Cause we had no, idea what it was so yeah i mean that and i think that that's part of the the vinyl my vinyl experience anyway was just the really compelling nature of uh the album jackets and the inner sleeves and the lyrics and the details and i'm an information guy so like all that information was like right there plus the smell so, remember, so remember the smell of a new album you know when mm-hmm. you take the plastic off and you'd be in your room and it just had like this smell and then you'd open it up and then the lyrics would be there and then the thank you list and who produced it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy produced that record by this band. And it was an experience because you were absorbing it both by hearing it and then by touching it and seeing it. Where right. today yeah, that tactile right. component was was huge, you know, the, and the ritual, right? of taking it out of the jacket for the first time, you know, and like maybe there's a little extra little bits of paper stuck to the record, like blowing them off. Right. Right. Setting it on the turntable, dropping the needle that, you know, the sound, you know, as you anticipate the start of the first track, you know, just the lead track of a record 
sequencing was such a big deal in the vinyl days. It you was know? yes, it was absolutely huge. The other you can do a whole show on sequencing, I think. <laughs> you can, you absolutely can. That, that that is a lost art in music today. Now it just seems yeah, call like, me back next week. We'll do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now it just seems like there's ten or twelve songs. Just like oh yeah, just put them wherever. It doesn't seem like you know that first song was like almost like a live show where it would hit you on top of the head. It would suck you in. And yeah, and, then, and the cool thing about about vinyl was that you had side two, right? So you had a second lead track as well. And it so was all, I, I always thought that was really cool. And it was always a thing too amongst my friends and I that we could tell you what side and where in the sequence the song was. Like, oh, it's side two, you know, song three, and and you know, it, it was written by this guy, and you just don't have that anymore because. You're just basically point-clicking download, and it, it basically, there's no physical aspect of it. The other thing that mm-hmm. people forget about, too, is any, everyone I know that has a CD collection like mine, probably similar to yours you know, with vinyl, is mm-hmm. our, our display. We like to show it off. Yes. It's, it's part of it. Like we, we like it when our friends come over and they look at our shelves or our wall with our music and they'll go, oh, wow, I remember that record. And I remember, oh, yeah, you got this? Oh, that's just, oh, man, this is so cool. Yeah, you learned a lot about a person if you didn't know them. If you're visiting with a friend at another friend's house. Right. You like, could really learn, you know, who's this person? What, what are they all about? Yeah, like, I could be friends with this guy. If he, you know, he likes yeah. this band and that band. I think we got a lot in common. And you bonded yeah, over it's them. interesting they bring that up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that you bring that up because you know, that's something that we really lost in you know, what I call the MP3 era. Yeah, you know, I, I always use the example of my buddy who has like, I think two, either three, two terabyte hard drives or whatever. He's got a bunch of hard drives just jam packed with music. And I, I, it's, it's unmanageable. Mm-hmm. It's, that's not a collection, you know, that's a mess. Right. And the best you can hope for is to put it on shuffle and pray <laughs> right. that, uh, that something comes up that you like. But you, you make a great point. You know, n- nobody you know sits around like you know flipping through playlists on a computer or looking at the titles of digital tracks and go, oh wow. You stand around with a glass of craft porter or wine or something and you know then look at the spines of somebody's record collection or CD collection, you know, and, and pull them down and go, oh yeah, you know, and then admire the art and stuff, you know. So it's a it's a much more engaging way to collect than sort of you know amassing computer files. It also has the ability to take you back, right? So when you're looking at someone's collection or if you're revisiting your own, and let's say you pull out a, an album that you haven't looked at in a while, you immediately go to that place in time when you were younger. It jogs your memory. You start to remember like hanging out in a summer, driving around listening to this song, or the girl mm-hmm. you dated when this song was popular, or whatever, It just has that ability to be a time machine. And I've brought this up before in a previous show. Dave Lee Roth, who I think is absolutely amazing, is, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you ever listen to his podcast, it's just like, man, I mean, the guy is just a genius. He he mentions, yeah, he talks about listening to music. And when you hear a song that you dig, you hear a song that you like, listen to it over and over and over again. Wear it out. Completely overplay it. Because when you hear it 20 years later, you will remember that song and you will remember your time and place in life when that song was popular, when that song came out. 
because music does have the ability to act like a time machine that jettisons yeah, you to totally different does. parts of your memory. So yeah, somebody that you know, we have a mutual follow on Twitter uh, tweeted about Kansas left overture the other day. Yes, and I was like, oh, I left overture, you know. So I was having a hard time sleeping, and I put it. So I I fired it up and put it on while I was trying to get to sleep. And I, I mean, just listening to side one in particular that you know kicked off with Carrie on Wayward Son, I was just like, I was transported back to eighth grade when after school. This guy, Brad Collins, and I, every day, we'd walk back to my house, and we'd put the same stack of records on the spindle on my parents' hi-fi. And, you know, Kansas Left Overture was one, Pink Floyd Animals, Alan Parsons, iRobot, Joe Walsh, uh, but seriously, folks. And just listening to the to the tunes on Left Overture, I was like, I went right back to that place. I could see the couch in our basement. And like the black and, and sort of orange shag carpet and the little pool table and studying algebra. And, you know, it was paradise. That collection of songs took me back to, you know, a time in my life that I would consider to be paradise. <laughs> yeah. And when I look at my son, who does enjoy the physical aspect of music and his friends and people in that generation and even older, you know, the the, the 20 somethings that are out there, there's no connection to it it doesn't have the same meaning yes they may like a song that's on the radio well first of all i don't consider people who like pop music music fans i consider right. people who like pop music they enjoy music they're not fans. yeah they're music consumers right. is what i call them. yes they're con- yes exactly that's a that's a good way to describe them but when you hear you know the younger generation talk about music oh you know i'm on i got my google playlist and or I've got my Amazon playlist or Spotify. And yes, we, we've got to be honest and say, yes, that's where music is going. Well, it's already there. It's going to continue to mm-hmm. go down that road. I think that is really, if, if people really want to talk about what's wrong with the music business and why the music business is struggling, it's because the lack of connection with music, the lack of physical connection with it. Mm-hmm. It's no longer an experience. It's no longer a, a a day you looked forward to. You know, when you've got, when you looked at a magazine back in the day and, and you saw this album comes out on this date or this band's coming to town on this date, you circled your calendar. You were ready for it. You didn't get a chance mm-hmm. to go on YouTube and watch the concert before you went to it. Um, right. Download the set list before you go to the show. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you were hoping that they would play a song that you wanted them to play. Right. You didn't go in the. In yeah, the we we always had had a bet. You know, what are they going to open with? Yes. You know, what are the yes, encore yeah. going to be? You know. So all that has to do with it because it's no longer special. It's no longer a moment that you mark out throughout your week that you're going to go get this record at the record store. When I first took mm-hmm. my son to a record store, he's like, "Where are we going?" I go, "We're going to a record store." Like, what do you mean? Like a record store? Like. Like, they just sell music there? I'm like, yeah, they just sell music. Like, only music, not like appliances or... I'm like, no, they only sell music. Yep, like, maybe some t-shirts, some posters. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah music-related items and stuff like that. And he loved it. He walked in like, that was that was so cool. You know, it's still not the same as when we were younger, but I kind of get upset when I hear my friends talk about their kids and their music tastes. And my son is a little rocker. You know, he's a teenager. He's mm-hmm. in high school. He likes rock music. And I like to think that I had a lot to do with that. I still remember. You did. 
Yes. I still remember the, the day that I picked him up and he was started to sing Lady Gaga poker face. And he was like, he was like three years <laughs> I old. Love it. He was like three years old. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, what, what, what are you singing? And he's like, uh, Lady Gaga, dad. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, Lady Gaga, immensely talented. Um, but no. So then I just started playing my music in the car with him and slowly you know, having him absorb that and, and get into it. And, and I, and I talked to my friends whose kids like other forms of music, whether it's rap or country or techno or whatever. And I'm just like, what happened to you, man? Like, like this was your responsibility as a parent <laughs> to pass off the, the passion of rock and roll. And I just, yeah, you know, just, just an ACDC onesie isn't going to do it, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. That's so true. You know, like now people buy the t-shirt. They have no idea, like more than like two or three songs. Like give me an ACDC song. That's not off back and black and highway to hell. Uh, right. not, you know. I, I were talking to some girl and she, she said she had on a Metallica shirt. She had on a Metallica <laughs> shirt. It was like, it's metal Metallica. Like she thought it was like a, like a clothing line or something like that. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I had an experience too. I, I saw a kid wearing a motorhead shirt one time. I what's the name of song from motorhead and he couldn't, he couldn't do it. So it's almost become like a, like a, a fashionable thing to wear now. Unbeknownst mm-hmm. to them, the, the, the music that what's on their t-shirt, you know, the band that, you know, performed that. Um, but no, it's, it's, yeah. It's hard to describe or how to how to describe what's going on, but people always talk about how they're going to fix the music business, what needs to be done, and I think there needs to be more of a physical connection to it. I hear bands on Twitter or Facebook post messages, should we print CDs? You know, will you buy absolutely you should print those CDs. Absolutely. And it doesn't cost a lot to print them either. It doesn't cost a lot to have a sleeve and a CD five five to six thousand of them it's not a lot of money to do that or um when you go on a tour you know print enough for the tour and then sell them on your site i mean you're not going to sell them all right away it's not like it was years ago but you will sell Mm -hmm. those cds eventually you will you will get your money back yeah it's funny to see these days more young bands selling vinyl at their shows than selling cds yes which makes sense um but I, I always think it's funny because I, I think it's probably for a young band a lot cheaper just to get a bunch of CDs made up. Absolutely. And you don't have to, you know, you can have your special editions on the website that are like, you know, have live songs or demos on it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's just to go to go to a show. I went to a concert back in April and I don't want to name the bands, but it was a national act at a small club and it was a new band out of L.A. After the opening band played, I went up to the merch table to go buy their CDs. You know, I always try to support the new bands and their music. I always, if, yeah. I, if I know a band's coming to town and I know their CD is out or their album's out, I'll wait till the show to buy the, the, the record because I know mm-hmm. it goes directly to them. You know, it, there's not like a middleman like Amazon right. or whoever. So mm-hmm. I go up to the merch table and I'm like, hey, you guys got a CD? Oh, you know, we... we we haven't uh, finished it up yet, and I'm just like thinking to myself, "You're on you're on tour with a national act, and you don't have your CDs ready." I mean, how how is that possible? So I then I go to the national acts merch table. 
Oh, they just released a CD like two weeks ago. I'm going to go get it. Hey, you guys got your new CD? No, we haven't gotten the shipment yet. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like, I don't know how many CDs a band sells a night. Could be 10, right. it could be 50, I don't know. But to yeah. not have that at the merch table after someone sees you live with their eyes is just mm-hmm. a lost opportunity for that artist or for that band. And I don't understand it. No, I agree. And, you know, you bring up a good point um, about bands, you know, just sort of abandoning physical. And one of the, the issues, you know, I was just sort of doing a little bit of reading up uh, you know, prior to our, our conversation. And one of the things that kept coming up is that R&B and hip hop, which are, you know, those are the genres that are you know, really dominant on the pop charts. You know, those artists have abandoned physical entirely. Cardi B, uh, some of some of these other top hip hop acts, just they don't print CDs at all. They don't press CDs at all. And in fact, artists in those genres would actually like to go away from the concept of the album and just release tracks, which makes sense. If you've got an album full of 15 tracks and you drop it all at once, you're getting a lot less publicity and promotional value than if you released all those tracks individually like every month or something. So I get that, but I guess their fans just aren't that into CDs or, or something. I don't know. But those artists, are, I guess, are driving the decline of CD much more than other genres. And because it's R&B and hip-hop you know, are the cash cows in music today, that's having an impact sort of down the, down the list. Well, that's interesting. You know, that, that, that's an interesting uh, fact that I did not know that, you know, that really did control the, the output of CD manufacturing was, and it makes sense mm-hmm. when you think about it, you know, pop music is always going to be the, the driver in a lot of things. Um, and then, but when you can't get rock and roll played on the radio, yeah, I, I hear you have, you know, like every major market it pretty much is the same thing. Most radio stations are all owned by two or three companies. They all own yeah. they they own everything. And then you've got your local independent station. Usually there's one or two in every market, in every big market. Some markets don't have that at all. And, and maybe you're fortunate enough to live near in or near a college town, you know, right. where there's college radio, which is usually pretty good. Right. I mean up in Chicago here we have XRT, which mm-hmm. is which has always been a really great station. I mean, they still play the deep cuts on a record that no one plays anymore. And then we sometimes get the signal from Milwaukee or from just over the border in Wisconsin. It's called Will Rock, 95 Will Rock. And okay. uh, it's Lake County, Illinois, or maybe it's Wisconsin. I'm not sure. But they play a lot more harder edge music. But still, it's an independent station that's allowed to play pretty much what they want. You don't have that anymore. You don't have any rock music. And then that, the rock music that is out there is all classic rock. And not to say that, That's right. not to say that it's classic rock is bad because it's not, it's great music, but you're not getting anything new. Even those bands that are played on classic rock, whether it's Led Zeppelin slash Robert Plant, no one plays Robert Plant's new stuff on the radio, whether it's Def right. Leppard, no one yeah, plays their, They'll play stuff. the Stones, but yeah. it's going to be brown sugar, right, you know, right. it's, you know, it's the same playlist that, you know, I was driving around with in my first car in 1980 one or two or whatever it's still yes roundabout you know and it's the same songs right there's no i remember the classic rock station in town here uh wcsx like and next up a deep cut from elton john and they played tiny dancer <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a 
great song, but it is not a deep cut. No, okay, no. you know, let's just be clear. Yeah, you know, when so they you're say, right. yeah, they they don't play like a deep cut by Led Zeppelin. They don't play like Night Flight or Out on the Tiles or anything like that. Um, right, you're not going to hear that stuff. And mm-hmm. you know, that's all because it's all corporate and packaged. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you look, but you look at the draws for live shows, right? You look at all those concerts that are out there whether it's metallica or guns and roses i mean they're all huge draws they're all huge money makers i don't know mm-hmm. why it doesn't translate into more airplay for newer music or for or just a, just a straight rock rock station i don't get yeah, it. i think they're slicing and dicing this stuff by demographic successful tours like acdc guns and roses the eagles are, are seen as middle-aged music and it's not uh, that genre isn't you know sort of promoted as popular music on the mainstream charts. That's what's so interesting to me about Greta Van Fleet. Talk about live performance. You know, I mean, listening to, to their recorded stuff is a completely different experience than seeing them live and hearing them live, as I'm sure you can attest. Yes, I mean those guys have that spirit. I don't know, you know, what deal with the, the devil at the crossroads or whatever <laughs> they made. But they've got that, you know, they've, they've got that energy, that spirit that, and, and that, and it's interesting that, you know, I've seen them a couple of times, us old guys are maybe hanging back more by the bar and the young, younger folks are up near, near press and towards the front. But, you know, you've got a really wide range of people uh, yes, you do. Yes. You know, who are attending those shows. And, you know, and Jack White is a similar type of phenomenon with his fan base. In some ways, there's like a self fulfilling prophecy about this. It's like, well, the kids don't like the rock and roll, so let's, uh, you know, let's not let's not promote it to the kids. When clearly they do. I mean, rock and roll. There, there's there's always going to be an appeal to guitar, bass, drums, and rock shouting. You know, there's just the energy is amazing. You know, and I, I, I listened to your discussion about uh, Chris Cornell. And talking about grunge a little bit, you know, and like grunge was really just rock and roll, right? With a little more angst, right? right. A little more, you know, introspection and, uh, you know, a little less good time celebration. It's all there. Something you said earlier made me think about, you remember Neil Young, like when CD first came out, when digital became a thing? Yes. Remember how, how anti-digital he was? Yes, I do. Yeah. And, and I remember like, I, I'm looking at, I've got a, copy of Nevermind sitting here on my desk and it has the AAD, right? So that was like a thing in the early days of CD. It was like AAD or DDD. You know, DDD was it was recorded in digital, mixed in digital, mastered in digital, you know, and that was supposed to be the best thing, right? It was digital. You know, all digital. And so even though Neil embraced that, he recorded digitally, even though he was railing against, you know, digital music. But I always think about that and I wonder... Does something happen in when you move away from that, you know, just that nice, pleasant analog sort of waveform in the sound? And you go back, you know, go to that more like jagged step form of the, you know, of the sound. And I wonder if that, I just, I always wonder if there's something in the shift of format from analog to digital that is a part of this mix that has really changed music so much, you know, do you ever think about that? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, obviously I, I have my vinyl collection. I always prefer the CD cause I love the cleaner sound. Um, mm-hmm. not to say that, 
you know, I, I, I don't like the intimacy of vinyl because I do. You do get more of an intimate sound on it. You know, then you, put it. Yeah, then you had more of a, you know, with the cassette, kind of had that area uh, era where it was kind of, yeah, I mean, cassettes was kind of like the necessary evil back in the day because vinyl was right, going more away. Right. Mm-hmm. But CD, I mean, you know, people talk about, you know, streaming music digitally, whether it's, you know, on Spotify or wherever they get their music. CD is still digital and CD still sounds great. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think people forget that this is a digital format we're talking about here. Right. And it's and Contact to me disc, digital audio. To me it sounds better. I mean, if you put your CD on a stereo versus streaming on whatever, if you can connect it through Bluetooth on your stereo, the CD will always sound better. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a compression thing or, or what. I have no idea. But mm-hmm. it definitely it definitely sounds way better. And you still Yeah, get- and there was, there's yeah, there's a lot of discussion about that and has been since you know C D was introduced back in you know, like eighty two, I think it uh originally debuted. You know, and you've heard talk of the loudness wars, right? The the and you mentioned compression, so that that is a phenomenon with CDs and that's why I, you know whenever people say oh vinyl always sounds better than digital than CDs I'm like that that's not a fair comparison right you're not you're really not that's an apples and oranges type thing I mean you can put on you know I guarantee if you went home and started you know, Led Zeppelin 4 at the beginning of the record and the beginning of the CD and just flip back and forth from the input the CD is just going to be louder it just is mm-hmm. that's you know the, the way they were mastered was different. That whole the whole process of you know bringing the music onto the you know the fixed disc is is different. So you know, it, and so that's why you know the, the whole notion of what's better or worse isn't really even relevant. It's what what's most appealing to your ears. Let's talk about this friend of mine whose his goal is to acquire the best sounding copy of every Frank Sinatra recording. He does his research. You know, he's like, you know, sometimes it's a CD, sometimes it's a it's a vinyl record, sometimes it's a you know high res flak file. It's just a matter of what sounds best. That's where I, I feel like, in terms of format, you know, and I, I look at my my daughter who's you know, seven now, and I started collecting vinyl again when she was a baby, so she's grown up with big black round things playing music and little, you know, smaller silver things playing music and mama's phone, like, you know, playing music. And she doesn't care. It could be a hamster on a wheel producing the sound. She just wants something that sounds good to her, you know, and I hope that we're sort of moving in that direction as a, a, a music, a community of music lovers. And the, the point that I, that I make a lot is the only people who win in a format war are the the rights holders, the people who control the means of production and then who hold the rights to the most coveted content. You know, so it's in it's in the record company's best interest to kill off vinyl and sell you CDs. Now they can release the same back catalog and cash the checks all over it. There's really no need to kill off a format, right? I mean, right. Everybody has their own preference. You know, maybe we're moving a little bit in that direction. I mean, some formats just frankly didn't make it. I mean, I was thinking about you know, things like mini disc and digital compact cassette, you know, that came out in the '90s. Yeah, and, you I know, stuff those. that it, 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 it's like Sony Beta tape. Right. 
tapes or whatever, you know, I mean, some of that stuff just never reached critical mass where you could you know, reasonably keep manufacturing it. But yeah. CDs, records, there's a place for all this stuff. I think even cassettes, I mean, there's that, you know, they have cassette store day now. Lots of these obscure bands that I've never heard of have cassette only release. Which I don't get. And I know like, we, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know I, I don't get that. I understand the vinyl. Because of the, it's kind of like, a, it's vinyl I look at is kind of like memorabilia. Like a band puts out a vinyl, most people maybe never play it. They keep it in the plastic and they put it on their shelf and their record collection, their vinyl collection. And it's, and it's a sense of, you know, it's a product, right? And the, and, mm-hmm. and the CD is the digital format. The CD, there are still cars with CD players in it. There's still people that have CD players in their home, you know, much more than mm-hmm. a record player. So that's their, you know, maybe their preferred way of playing it. Digital, I get, you know, the young kid with his phone and, and whatnot. But cassette, like, you, there's, where do you play that? <laughs> and, maybe, and, and, and maybe it is like the memorabilia. Okay, so maybe if we go down that road and connect it that way, okay, I get it. It's a, it's a, it's a memorabilia piece of that artist or band. I, I, you know, there, there, there's, there's, a, there's a podcast of that with ACDC that, that I've done. And then that discussion is how we compare ACDC to KISS in terms of memorabilia. And KISS, of course, just flooded the market with everything mm-hmm. from the KISS phonograph to the KISS garbage can to whatever, whereas mm-hmm. ACDC it didn't have a lot of memorabilia. So I can understand someone who likes a band like ACDC who's very passionate buying their vinyl re-releases you know, the, the different colored vinyl, like the, the, the white vinyl or the red vinyl or mm-hmm. whatever. I, I get it. And that's a great way to pull in revenue for a band too, as well. But you know, the cassette, I guess if you quantify it that way, I guess it is memorabilia, but I just like, I don't know. I, I, I start to get the shakes whenever I see a cassette. You know, Cause it's like, yeah, I just, like now I got to go buy a, an 83 Dodge <laughs> Omni so I can play this thing, you know? <laughs> but I just remember like, you know, all the frustration with a cassette, like, you know, remember like when the tape would, <laughs> would get all like crazy or like it would come out and it would wrap around. The, yeah, and you, you got the yeah. pencil out oh. on the cap stand there and you're like trying to rewrap it, you right. know? Right, you know, and, and like, and then you had like these these uh, cassette holder things, like these like these, you know, where you put them in there. And I, what what would always frustrate me about the cassettes is that when you when you put them in these like drawer things or whatever, you couldn't display them. They were like it, they were like in a box. You had to mm-hmm. open them up. So that's why I always love CD or vinyl because I could put it on my shelf. I could put it, mm-hmm. you know, cassettes. I don't know. I I, I had a whole bunch of yeah, cassettes. I remember, I remember when I moved once. I still, I had an Explorer that still, it had a CD player, but it also had a cassette. It was just like 2000. So, I mean, I don't even know why it still had it, but so in moving, I found this big box of cassettes, you know, a lot of pre-recorded stuff, a lot of commercially purchased stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to put this box in the car, you know, I'm going to drive around and listen to see what I got here. I mean, all this stuff was so like dropped out and like, you know, I was just like, I'd listen for like 10 minutes, like, flip it out the window. I was like, that one's that's yeah, trash. Yeah. yeah. Now that you've fallen in love with the digital sound, you know, hearing a cassette, it's like, uh, this is like, this is going back to VHS from like blue, you know, like DVD or, or Blu-ray, you know, it's, it's, it just right. doesn't, it doesn't hold up. And so I guess if it's, if it's that Avenue that they're trying to create a sense of, or, or, or a piece of memorabilia for whomever, yeah. I, I get it. I, I understand that. Yeah. 
Um, and I think the whole mixtape thing, you know, there, I've, I've got a lot of nostalgia for, for the mixtape and the Walkman kind of thing from the from original, the, 80s. the original file sharing was, was the, was the mixtape, yeah. you know, like if you had, yeah. if you had a couple records that your friends did and they had a couple records that you didn't, you'd kind of like record it for them and, the only difference is, is that if I like the record, if my friends like the record, I would, I would go out and buy the physical copy. I would, I would sure. go out and buy the cassette. I'm like, oh, wow, this Megadeth mm-hmm. record or, or this, you know, Van Halen album is great. You know, I would go buy it. Whereas I think now with file sharing and everything, once you have it, you, you don't have the urge or motivation to go buy the physical copy. Right. That's true. Yeah. And I, I used to like with, like the blank cassettes, just the, the odd pairings that you'd end up with. Like I remember I had Sergeant Pepper on side A and Hotel California on side B. It's like, okay, cool. you know, but it's just like, hey, you know, just throw something on there. It was never like, I never really thought about it that much, you know, but it was always interesting to see what two records. You only uh, thought about it when you were making a mixtape for a chick, right? Right. Like, like exactly. you were trying to convey your feelings through the music. So that's, mm-hmm. that's when it was important. Yeah. The other, for sure. yeah. The, the other thing that is that not talked about with streaming music in the digital format is how it pigeonholes your taste in music. So if mm-hmm. you're on Google play and you're streaming through Google, or if you're streaming through Spotify and you've got a list of artists that you like, you're not going to hear anything different. You're only going to hear what is like this band or like this artist. You're not going to have the freedom to explore other artists that may sound really cool. Like if you like if you if you're like streaming Metallica, Macedon, Megadeth, Slayer, you're not going to hear anything different. Uh, and maybe you don't want to hear anything different. Right. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Maybe that's cool to you. I always like to hear. I, I, I love different stuff. I love everything from Bob Seger to Metallica to Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, yeah. You know to the Beatles. I, I like it all. I mean, like if it's good, I want to hear it and I like it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. with streaming, yeah, and there was Pandora, right? I was always like intrigued by the promise of of a Pandora station turning me on to something that I didn't know before. But it never really works out that way. It always. Like like my sister, I was talking to my sister last night. She's like, it always ends up playing the Beatles, no matter what I do. <laughs> you know? and I'm like, You're it's, right. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes recently was from a guy named Ben Cesario, who writes in the New York Times, and it, he was talking about tech. And he said, to be honest, my preferred way to listen to music is on CD, as unfashionable as that might be. You push a button, the music plays, and then it's over. No ads, no privacy terrors, no algorithms. That's so true. That is, that that is a perfect, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing too is, is, is your, your lack of exposure. So like, let's say you're an artist or you're a fan and you have the Beatles, the Stones, and you have Zeppelin on your Pandora or Spotify. Let's say there's some new bands out there that you probably like, if you like those three bands, you're never going to hear them. Mm-hmm. You're not going to hear them because the algorithm is going to put you farther away from that. And then it's so much harder for a newer band with new music to get discovered because of that. Yeah. You've got to push your way into the tech, you know, into the sort of the A&R 
system and then into the tech part of that whole thing. You know, somehow you've got to push your way in. That has got to be more difficult to try and figure out than, you know, trying to get signed by a label, you know. Right. Um, well, that's and that's, why. that's not, you're talking about the deperson, you know, the depersonalization of music. You know, you had uh, you know, a really interesting discussion with, I forget her name, when you guys were talking about the dirt on a recent episode. And she was talking about having an older friend who got her into Molly Crew. And that friend, she kept getting new ideas of things to listen to from that friend. You know, or she go to the record store and ask, I am into this. What else did you, you know? So that's real personal, right? I mean, you're interacting with other human beings, sharing tastes, and then going out and experimenting with this new information that you've received from an actual person and putting it to the test and then sharing that with somebody else coming along. And, and this sort of algorithm-based discovery thing, you know, we're, we're losing more human contact, right? Yes. More, more bots are instructing us and guiding us and telling us what to do instead of other people. And I I think I'm not comfortable with that. Let's put it that way. Well, it it really is the the new way, right? I mean, technology has Mm -hmm. the ability to connect you with more people, but also isolate you at the same time. It's very tricky how that whole thing works. Like, you know, you think of Facebook, not to get off on a rant here or anything like that, but I'm, I'm in my mid forties. So, we had our 15-year, what was it? Hold on a second. Uh, okay, yes, we had our 15-year high school reunion, or 20-year high school reunion. And everybody- You didn't go to math college, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, yeah. <laughs> Good one. Very funny, very funny. But I'm trying, no, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. So we had a, we had a school, I, I don't know if it was a 15-year or 20-year or whatever, but we had a, an event where everyone got together. And this is pre-Facebook. And everybody showed up because Mm -hmm. you wanted to, like, see old friends. You wanted to know what was going on with everybody. You, Everyone had that conversation. Hey, man, what have you been up to? Hey, what have you been doing? What's going on? Now, when we just had our 25th year reunion, barely anybody went because everybody knows what's going on with everybody. So those discussions Mm -hmm. never take place. Those that that hey, I want to go and talk to this guy. I've never talked. I haven't talked to him in ten plus years. You you see his Facebook feed. You already know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when people Good post, point. you know, when people post the annoying shit that everybody you know reads and everything like that. Oh God, I don't want to go talk to that guy. Like, oh, he's just annoying. You know, so it takes. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm not on Facebook. I just don't want to be found. Well, you don't want to be Most found. Of those people I didn't like when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm still not going to like them. But, but it, it just goes like, yes, it's connecting you to everybody from your past that's on Facebook. You can connect with old girlfriends, old friends, old coworkers, everything. It's so awesome. Well, you can connect with everybody. But then, like, think about how social you are as a result of that. Now, for, for instance, my circle of friends has gotten a lot smaller as I've got older. I think that's natural in most yep. cases. But I think it mm-hmm. just becomes that you become more isolated. You become, you lack the motivation to be social or go to social events because that aspect of seeing everybody and knowing everybody's business already mm-hmm. stops you from, from participating in that. And I think it also goes with the same with music, right? So mm-hmm. you are, you are connected to all the artists that you like on Twitter, on Facebook, on Spotify, on Pandora. Wow. Like, Oh, I used to like these guys. I'm like this, this guy. And then, you, you lack the motivation to hear anything new. 
most of us who are passionate about music love hearing new music. However, when mm-hmm. the algorithm or that digital side or that digital aspect almost prohibits you from searching for it or knowing of it, everybody loses. You lose as a music fan. The artist loses because that person, that band can't reach you like it used to be able to. And mm-hmm. and then you add in the, the live show where you can go on YouTube and you can pretty much see how they're performing. Oh, this guy, they don't really sound good anymore. I don't want to go spend the money and go check them out. So mm-hmm. look at him. He looks old. Yeah, that's the other thing too. That, and, 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 <laughs> He's not hot anymore. Yeah, it's it's like <laughs> where, who who the hell are we to? Oh, the, he doesn't sound like he used to sound. Oh my god, he's he's just out of shape. Most of us, as we've gotten older, <laughs> have gotten out of shape, have lost some hair, don't look like we used to, don't sound like we used to. So who are we to sit there, be negative, or, or comment negatively on 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 Robert Plant or whomever? No one is mm-hmm. going to sound when they're pushing 70. No one's going to sound like they did when they were 22. It's just impossible. It's just not going to happen. And mm-hmm. most of us who are commenting or those that are commenting are sitting behind a computer screen, resting their beer on their gut, <laughs> and passing judgment. It's, it just annoys the piss out of me. When I, when I read that stuff, it's like, no, man. If you, go to, if you go to a show with the same expectation that you had when you saw them 20 years ago, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go. Don't go. If you, you know. Yeah, and it's a really great point. And, you know, so back in the aughts, as I like to call them, a great band from, from your nape of the neck, Wilco. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just embodied what we're talking about, you know, the antithesis of what we're talking about, because those guys just tour. They still do. I mean, I'm sort of out of it, but for, you know, a, a good, better part of a decade, I didn't, like, some of my buddies were like, on the road, at least through the Midwest with Wilco, would follow them around. You know, they go to Kalamazoo, they go to Louisville, they go to Cincinnati, they go to Chicago, you know, do the, the residency at the Riviera or whatever, you know. You could meet those guys. Like, if you went to a show, you know, John Stewart might be at the bar, like, before the set. You know, Tweedy you, you do, does house concerts and stuff like that where, you know, where you can actually meet these guys and get to know them. And, I mean, there's a deep connection that they've forged between themselves and their audience that you just, you, you can't, it, it, I mean, and, and social media has been a big part of that, you know, via Chicago, you know, their message board and stuff like that was a, a great way for people to connect a lot. You know, I made a lot of great friendships with other fans, you know, and then you found out about other band, bands would open for Wilco and other you know people you'd stand in line with who were like, Hey, are you into this? You know, check this out. So it was just like a real, I mean, it's almost like a dead head kind of thing in a way yeah. where, you know, you'd see familiar faces at the shows and learn about new, new artists and, and that type of thing. And everybody was, you know, sort of on the same page, different you know, angles at it and stuff like that. And I, I just, I, that really appealed to me, you know, at that time when the iPod and iTunes and MP3, you know, computer-based, file-based music was, you know, sort of taking over. It was, you know, my, my first final purchase, was, you know, I bought a, a copy of a Wilco record at one of their shows. I was like, oh, they're selling vinyl. Cool. You know, so I think artists really crave that, too. I mean, you always hear about artists who want to go get back out on the road, get, you know, in front of the fans and, uh, and hear the, 
hear the applause and, and that type of thing. So there's a, a real human element to to all of this. You know, you just read frequency of a guitar, you know, certain woods that they choose to you know, to make a guitar. The the digitizing of everything is a it, it, it just seems less human to me. Right. And you know, we lose we lose those connections. But that kind of gets back to like my multi-format type thing. I mean, uh, you know, you and I are connected through social media, through Twitter. I would never have known you or got the chance to, you know, hear your conversations with, you know, with other like-minded folks if it wasn't for social media. So, you know, and algorithms have sort of turned me on to, to music that I wouldn't have, have heard about otherwise. But I, I think this absolutist sort of mentality about format is, is, is really where we we slip out of balance you know like it's got to be all this or it's got to be all that and then again i go back to you know the only one who benefits from that is the man <laughs> you know yeah that's true um, so i think you know there there's an opportunity for all this stuff to coexist and that and, and that's what, what i like about you know there's I think there's like some 1800 independent music sellers still in the united states that's great, man. Like I go to my local record store once a week and sometimes I'm not even in the market to buy. I just go to talk to the people who work there, talk about new releases, what's coming out. You know, then I can go home and I can sample some stuff. You know, I, I have a, I guess they call it Napster now, a Rhapsody account and I can go home and I can sample that. Like, okay, you know, I, I wanted to hear the Stray Cats record. How is the sound? Do I really, do I want to I mean, for me, it's like, do I want to invest shelf space? Frankly, right, <laughs> it's a limited right, right. amount. You know, yes. small house with uh, now two little kids. You know, I, I like that. You know, uh, you know, if there's a really expensive record that I've been looking for, but I don't really know that much about it, well, I can listen to it. You know, and decide whether this is something that I want to invest in for my collection. So, I think there's, you know, there's symbiosis across, you know, all these formats, and I. I hope that C- that that CD hangs in there. I really do because I think this the CD format. I, I made a mixed CD for the woman who eventually became my wife before she went on a trip to New York with her friends. I wanted to show her how how thoughtful and cool I was by you know, making this thing for her and you know, showing her like this is all the cool music I'm doing. Now. <laughs> um, so that whole you know notion of sharing music like a mixtape. So I hope that we stick around with that and there's some 250 billion cds that have been sold over the years so there's a lot of great music you know that's out there on the cheap yeah i mean you can buy i mean i was at the record store the other day and they're like oh yeah there's a bunch of free stuff up by the front door and i was like wow cool there's like like tons of compilations with bands i'd never heard of but mixed in with some bands i'd sort of heard of like oh great you know i grabbed like 30 of them I'm like, maybe hopefully I can discover some new, new artists. And, uh, you know, and they had like the mystery box, buy it for a dollar. And there's 40 CDs in there. You know, I'm like, they're giving this stuff away, Jay. (laughs) Well, sounds great, man. Well, I think we're going to end it there. We're going to have to end it there, but no, I, I, I want to pick up this conversation again. I think we could keep talking about different ways and different, different avenues. Um, but we'll end it with the mystery box, the experience of, of picking up free music like that. I think that's great. Once again, I thank you for doing this. I really do appreciate it. Um, it's great having you on, and I look forward to having you on again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for yeah. having me on. 
All right, Chris, I really do appreciate yeah, I love, it. I love the uh, yeah, I love the podcast. I mean, you've had uh, a lot of great guests and, and covering some some really compelling topics. Well, you know, so, uh, I, I, I want to do more stuff like this though. Instead of like focusing on a, spe- uh, a specific artist or band, I love having discussions like this, and because I think it's important for music fans and, and music lovers to kind of hear different opinions and different points of view, maybe things they're not thinking of, and how they can help keep rock music alive and functioning. Cause I don't think it's yeah. dying. I don't think it's dying. Like people say it is, but I think it's, it's definitely on life support. So, but Hey, again, but yeah, no, I'd love to pick up, I'd love to pick up this conversation again. And, you know, we talked about doing a sequencing conversation. That would be a fun conversation to have right there. Let's do that. Let's, let's do, so, let's do something about sequency. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's message each other. Let's pick a time and date and let's do it. Okay. All right. That All right. Sounds wonderful. All right, Chris, thank you again very much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Once again, this is The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.